The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. From your favorite source for Chicago White Sox talk, delivering news, interviews, analysis, and more. This is the Sox Machine Podcast with your hosts, Jim Margulis and Josh Nelson. Thanks, Rob, and welcome to the Sox Machine Podcast. I'm your host, Josh Nelson, and it's the week of September 20th, 2021. This episode is a bit special because I am on the road recording this show from Dallas, Texas, as I went on a mini vacation, getting a chance to see Austin, Texas for the first time, and watch the White Sox on Sunday in Arlington. We'll recap the series. I'll provide a a review of Globe Life Park, the new stadium for the Texas Rangers, and look ahead to the next series for the Chicago White Sox as their 11-game road trip continues to Detroit. The Chicago White Sox are 85 and 64. They're up 11 games in the American League Central. They're three games back at Houston for the second seed in the American League Divisional Series. With the magic number at four games, it's possible the White Sox clinch the American League Central in their next series at Detroit. Will they accomplish that task in Detroit? We'll discuss that later in the show. At the end of the show, we'll answer your questions in P.O. Sox. Joining me is the managing editor of SoxMachine.com and the co-host of the podcast. It's Jim Margulis. And hello, Jim from Dallas, Texas. I didn't see much of the first two games against the Texas Rangers. So help me catch up. What did I miss? Well, I think if you saw the first two games of the Angel series, you basically got most of the way there. It was a big, solid win in the first game. 8 nothing. Dylan Cease. Uh, was inefficient. You know, I guess it was a typical Dylan C start, one you've seen a few times this year, where he's inefficient early, but ultimately like too overpowering to punish. And then eventually he finds a groove and gets through five, strikes out 10, looks great. Uh, the offense um, you lit up Taylor Hearn pretty well. Um, second game, offense goes dormant. Lance Lynn doesn't get much support. Uh, there's a little bit of leaky defense that uh, puts an unearned run on his tab. You know, just... Uh, goes into the sixth maybe he shouldn't have in terms of like if they're trying to win the game versus try to help push Lynn back to his old workhorse habits um but anyway he goes in the sixth 
gives up a run. They lose two to one. That's the deciding uh, run that uh, uh, makes difference in that game. And then uh, fortunately um, in, in a departure from previous series where the Sunday lineup is kind of the one that is either mailed in or guys getting rest. Uh, the Sunday lineup came through, batted around and uh, ultimately redeemed it. So really the, uh, uh, the only similarities run through the first two games. Yeah, it is a bit baffling how feast and famine this White Sox lineup is because being at the game on Sunday, the first three innings against Jordan Lyles, like this White Sox lineup had good scoring opportunities, Jim, in the first three in- innings, but failed to do even the little things. You know, For example, when Zach Collins hits a leadoff double. Now, Zach Collins is not demonstrating a lot of power. That's the reason why when he does play, he's batting ninth. When the leadoff hitter batting ninth hits a leadoff double and you got Tim Anderson, Yohan Mikata, and Jose Abreu coming up, I'm expecting that run to score because these three are arguably the best hitters the White Sox have in the lineup. Obviously, the numbers say something different the last 30 days with Yasmani Grandal and Luis Robert, but theoretically, these three, who are very good offensive players, should get the job done. Tim Anderson strikes out. Yohan Mikata does what Anderson should have done by hitting a grounder to the right side of the infield. That moves Collins to third base. And with two outs, Jose Abreu can't cash in the run at third base. And we see this often uh, in extra innings uh, (laughs) with the runner on second to start there. I know people hate that rule, but that's just the same type of frustration. Why can't they score in the 10th inning? I I don't know. They continue to somewhat struggle with these opportunities. Then, you, as you mentioned, the fourth inning, they light it up. They put up five runs, a home run from Yasmani Grandal, a couple of RBI singles from Jose Abreu and Cesar Hernandez. And for an inning, the offense puts it all together, and you can look at that fourth inning, Jim, and say, this offense could be a juggernaut. But as you just recapped as far as over the weekend, you could also point to Saturday and say, This is how the White Sox are going to get knocked out of the playoffs. They're going to get Mm -hmm. really good starting pitching, but it's really up to this offense to decide on how far this team's going to go in in 2021. And it it just seems even within games, there's a lack of consistency from this offense. Yeah, I think part of it's been the rotating cast of uh, injuries and having Tim Anderson cycle in and out of the lineup and having Andrew Vaughn kind of fading out and giving way to an injury, having Grandal come back from injury and look great, having Eloy Jimenez come back from injury and look temporarily great and then get in a rut. Uh, you know, having uh, Luis Robert come back and then, you know, cycle in and out, having Brian Goodwin's, uh, you know, magic dust kind of run out. <laughs> They've uh, been able to improvise for most of the season, but I think there are some games where the... Income, I guess I should say like the incomplete nature of the offense, or at least the incomplete status of the lineup for most of the season, sometimes rears its head. And sometimes you see like, oh yeah, this is why, um, you know, maybe we should have, um, you know, expected Eloy Jimenez to have a little bit rougher reintroduction than he did against major league pitching. And maybe that's why, uh, you know, we shouldn't uh, uh, understate uh, what Yasmani Grandal is doing coming back from his injury. Just it's uh, been a little bit of a weird year. And I think it's the success of the offense has made it easy to overlook 
how weird of a year it's been, but you know, when you see the fits and starts that they've had and some of the uh, guys who are there and then who aren't there and trying to make their way through, like Yohan Makata, another one uh, battling some sort of wrist issue on and off. Like that's a case where it just, it might be a matter of a combination of normal human uh, you know, variability from game to game, but also some you know, conditions they're trying to manage and maybe are worse than other days game to game. Do you buy into the philosophy of baseball that the offense has to find some type of more consistent rhythm prior to the postseason? Or do you think it is possible for an offense, a a team's offense in baseball, to flip the switch when it's October? More the latter. I mean, it would be nice if they found consistency. But, I mean, the way way it happens in the postseason in such a small sample is no matter what story we want to tell, you can do it. Um, you know, whether they uh, come together late and then you have a rough ALDS and are one and done and say, well, they should have saved their runs for the games that mattered. <laughs> like that just seems how <laughs> you know, it would work out if it didn't, uh, you know, if they somehow turn it on in the last week. So that's why I'm not really, you know, I, I find the postseason a little bit difficult to talk about. And, you know, it's nice that we'll be able to talk about it. Uh, just from all these years on the outside looking in and just seeing how much is made of managerial decisions and how much people try to steer away conversations from just players succeeding or failing. Uh, I think that's something I try to keep in mind. Like these are big stages. Uh, the players ultimately decide as much as the managers do and Mm -hmm. just players, some players will succeed. Some players won't. It's a zero sum game. Uh, you know, a hero makes a goat basically. So, uh, I'm looking forward to that tension. Like it, it's even last year didn't feel real because it was an extra round of the postseason. I, I think if they got past Oakland, it would have felt more real, uh, to me, it, you know, would have felt that tension, but, uh, for the time being, it just still felt like a play in round rather than an actual postseason. So I'm looking forward to that tension. I'm looking forward to writing about it and solving it for myself. But I think uh, just, yeah, it sounds overly simple and trite to say, well, you just got to see the players show up. But really, that's the story. And, you know, whether they do or don't, like whatever happens the week before, uh, whether it comes to rest, whether it comes to performance, um, you know, whether it comes to thinking somebody's been pushed when they shouldn't be, or maybe somebody's been babied when you think they shouldn't be. Like, there, I think there's a way to spin it to try to make it not about players not showing up. And I think, you know, ultimately, I think I'm going to lean towards, you know, more or less saying, well, this guy didn't show up or this guy just got beat. And then see if there's anything, you know, underneath the performance, anything showing visibly from their performance to make me think otherwise. When it comes to the consistency from now until the end of the regular season, I am focused on approach because if a hitter, and you could just tell from a hitter's based on their batted ball data, even, you know, strikeout rate, walk rate, if the approach is good, then there isn't really anything to worry about for that particular player come the postseason. I think Yoan Mankata lately, Jim, especially the last 30 days, is having a really good approach. And we're starting to see him flex some power. He's getting some power results. Obviously, Yasmani Grandal is hitting at an MVP level since he has came back off the injured list. And we have talked about in great length the transformation from Luis Robert coming off the injured list, that he looks more mature, he looks more polished, which is a surprise because he's missed 
so much time uh, with his hip flexor injury. Then there is Aloy Jimenez. And in his last 23 games, he's hitting 205 on base percentage of 286. And he is slugging 295. In the last 23 games, Eloy has two home runs and two doubles. Now, I have a good idea of what's wrong with Eloy Jimenez. What are your thoughts on what's causing Eloy Jimenez to really struggle in his last 23 games? To me, it seems like, and I just checked the heat maps to make sure that this was validating, but it seems pretty clear. Like, he's just not really covering the outside corner well. Yes. Um, I'm not sure if he's, like, just opening up too much or bailing out or, like, kind of stepping in the bucket a little bit um, and just not leaving himself in a position making, uh, you know, real strong impact on balls away and low and away. But when you look at his heat maps year over year, like, uh, the 2020 heat maps are basically red all the way through like at the very fringe of the bottom of the zone, like a really well-located down and away pitch. Like he doesn't do as well, but you know, that's kind of a pitch that's tough to damage. That's why pitchers hang out there. But when you look at like just horizontally inside to outside, like he can cover uh, the edge to edge pretty well. And this year he's just losing that outer edge. Yeah. That's what I noticed too on baseball savant. And it seems like the barrel is slow coming through on that outside corner. So if you throw a fastball or a slider away from Eloy Jimenez, Jim, I, as a pitcher, you're getting him to beat the ball into the ground and he's topping mm-hmm. it and we're seeing all these grounders. And I know I keep repeating this phrase, but for Eloy Jimenez, put you got to put the ball in the air, man. He is so strong and he gets such excellent... He's still putting up excellent exit velocity numbers, and people will say, well, I'm not worried about the ground ball rate because he's hitting them above 100 miles per hour. That is something to worry about with the ground ball rate because if he continues to do this, that's how teams are going to attack him in the next couple of weeks. That's 100% the way that Houston is going to attack Eloy Jimenez, and it's pretty apparent over the last 23 games this is how you can neutralize him. But this is new for me watching Aloy, Jim, because we have talked about on how dangerous he could be if you locate a pitch in the outside corner because of his opposite field power. And I'm wondering, I know this is the old baseball hitting philosophy that when you're in a rut, you got to think about going opposite field more. But does that make sense now for Aloy that he needs to look to go right, right center field? and see if he can generate power going opposite field on those outside pitches before getting more comfortable and focusing on going up the middle or try to pull pitches that he knows that he could put into the left field bleachers? I think he's one of the hitters you can say that about just because he's so strong that he can put the ball out to right field. Like they're going to Detroit, and we've seen him hit homers into Comerica Park's right field mm-hmm. seats, like in in almost by accident. <laughs> like it's, uh, you know, a high pitch, it looks like, oh, it's going to slice foul or it's going to be caught uh, you know, near the right field corner. And then it goes like five rows deep into the stands, and we're like, huh. Uh, but right now it looks like kind of the, the battle he fought during this first couple months in the majors where he's just getting a lot of junk low and away, kind of getting breaking balled to death, basically, especially like in counts where he might not be expecting or counts where he is. Like he's just not able to cover that pitch right now. And yeah, maybe he is trying to do too much and try to, you know, 
sees the the early success that he had um you know with getting the ball in the air with hitting homers making it look easy and right now it's just not coming easy and maybe he's you know with his plate coverage being as good as it is that probably I'm thinking like Jose Abreu somebody similar just has great plate coverage has a couple swings that can do damage you probably get the feeling that you can do anything or you can mm, hit point. any pitch, hit any pitch hard. And perhaps he's not quite at an Abreu level, you know, given Abreu's uh, extensive professional experience before he came over. Um, he showed up basically fully formed as a major league player. Like Jimenez still developing a little bit, um, you know, just putting the, the finer points on his game. And then you throw the, the injury and, and time missed this year. And there could be just uh, reforming a book, on him and, and making adjustments to those adjustments. But yeah, the, uh, the ground ball rate has trickled up. The hard hit rate has gone down. So like even some, even the ground balls are just more normal. They're, they're not really hard hits. So the, the hope is that, you know, it, it's crested a bit, the ground ball spike and it'll be on the way back down. But, uh, I, I think he got a, a deserved day off to try to write himself and, uh, just, yeah, I think thinking right field, especially like when he has the power to do so and, and it's harder to hit ground balls to the right side, uh, that might be the way to go just because he is that talented and sometimes his best contact goes that way anyway. Definitely something to watch for this upcoming week for Eloy Jimenez against Detroit and Cleveland. He's got he's to gotta keep the ball off the ground. He, is the, he can do so much damage when he hits the ball in the air for the White Sox. And right now, when he is bouncing these grounders to the left side at third base and shortstop, it's definitely causing problems with the White Sox offense, especially consistencies, because he's getting guys on base. And if he hits a ground ball, I know that he's running a lot better than everyone assumes, and he could beat out some double plays. But you're either looking at fielder's choices and double plays and we know that Aloy Jimenez can do better than that. So it'll be interesting to see what he does this upcoming week. I have a pop quiz. So for those that are listening, you could also play along uh, while you're listening here. So Jim, in the last 30 days, the Chicago White Sox have five hitters who have an OPS higher than 900. Can you name the five hitters? And I'll give you a hint. One of them has played in 15 games during this 30-day stretch. Hmm. Okay, so, you know, Yasmani Grandal. Check. Yep. <laughs> that feels pretty solid. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, so, last 30 days. So, that would be so mid-August. So, Abreu. Yes. August Abreu. <laughs> yep. <laughs> um, so, five. So, Luis Robert. Three. Hmm. Does Gavin Sheets count? Gavin Sheets counts four. Okay. He is your hint, by the way. Okay. And Mancata? Close. Mancata was at 865. Mm. Lurie Garcia. That was my other guess. That was my other dark horse. But I thought maybe Sheets was my one dark horse. So. <laughs> yeah, well, you got that one. That was the one that surprised me a bit. But yeah. Grandal, Robert, Abreu, Sheets, and Garcia all have above 900 OPSs the last 30 days. And Yohan Makata, nothing to complain about at an 865 OPS. White Sox pitching. So you touched on it when you were recapping Friday and Saturday for me. Because when I when I look at the box score, Dylan Cease, Luke, Lance Lynn, and Lucas Giolito 
these seem to be pretty consistent. They're getting through five innings, you know, entering the sixth inning. Larusa is not really pushing them more than a hundred pitches. None of the three have touched a hundred pitches. Carlos Rodon, which we'll talk about uh, after the break here when we preview the White Sox and Tigers series. He's going to start the game on Monday uh, for the White Sox. Probably isn't going to throw 100 pitches because it's been months since the last time that Carlos Rodon has thrown 100 pitches. But the White Sox starters, at least those four, Rodon, Cease, Lynn, and Giolito, we are seeing some consistency with this starting pitching. And it, it looks like that this is something that maybe White Sox fans could possibly expect come the postseason, these types of performances, Jim, where they are going to be able to keep the Houston Astros at bay, knock on wood, over five innings, one to two runs, but because they are facing a dynamic lineup, they're going to have a pretty high pitch total through five innings. I think Lynn, you know, he he had the Romy Gonzalez error on a double play ball that should have ended the inning, so that added 12 pitches to his pitch count. Um, uh, basically, uh, added, you know, it put the first unearned run on his tab. So he was, I think, more efficient than the box score showed. So I, I think I was generally encouraged by his outing. I think Giolito more or less just challenged the Rangers and and you know, had a good array of pitches. They didn't get too much in terms of swings and misses like not not that kind of dominance but also got weak contact I think just it's I'm still the most confident in Lynn I think going into an ALDS matchup with the Astros even if his uh, career numbers against the Astros maybe are lacking but uh, I think they can maybe go six that's why I'm thinking like it's uh you know it's a good idea for Lynn to pitch a sixth even if it might not be what you do in an ALDS game. But I think it's also important, you know, if they are more going to be five inning pitchers rather than six, maybe pitching into the seventh, if they're going well, I think it's really important that Michael Kopech has started looking better, that his slider has been sharper. Uh, He gave up the homer to, uh, uh, to Brandon Marsh, uh, the opposite field shot on a 101 mile per hour fastball that just kind of drifted over the plate. But um, he'd been getting hammered on the slider uh, in his previous outings, and that's been pretty sharp the last couple times out. So I think if he's able to step up and deliver two inning outings like we thought he could, you know, when you're talking about him, you know, working his way in the rotation perhaps during the first half of the season, I think that's something that can offset. Um, maybe if Tony Larusa sees that he can only get five out of Giolito, Lynn, and company, um, Kopech will help. Yeah, Michael Kopech in his last five appearances covering seven innings. He's only allowed to one earned run. As Jim just mentioned, that was a home run against the Angels. But Kopech has 13 strikeouts to just two walks and four hits allowed in his last seven innings of work. That is awesome. Aaron Bummer, Jim has also been throwing well. He's got six straight scoreless outings, four and two-thirds innings during that stretch, striking out eight, walking none, and only allowing one hit. Is there anything in particular you are seeing from Aaron Bummer? Along, and you mentioned as far as what's working for Michael Kopech, but adding in Bummer to have this excellent stretch that we've seen from Bummer. I think we've seen enough of Aaron Bummer over the last few years, you know, since he's become, you know, Aaron Bummer, since he's become a guy worthy of an extension that he seems like he just runs hot and cold. But yeah, I'm looking at his September game log, no walks. I mean, that's basically it. 
the strike percentage is very good. Uh, and that's always been the frustrating thing about him when he's not going well. Like in, in August, he had five consecutive outings with the walk. And he, even though he wasn't, you know, he, he was mainly coming in for an inning. You know, he had one game where he pitched more than an inning, but really he wasn't being expected to be a long reliever. And he happened to walk like one of seven batters. He just wasn't throwing strikes basically from the start. Uh, we, we've seen him just between the sinker and the cutter that he can... I always think back to Edwin Jackson, like when the White Sox uh, corrected him and, and got a good year and a half out of him, that basically the whole idea was just like throw it to the middle of the strike zone. You have enough life on your pitches to carry it away from the barrel um, and you have enough variability in your command to where like it'll end up in good places <laughs> or at least it'll end up in useful places. And I kind of feel the same thing with Bummer and that between a sinker having the sink that it does and the slider being you know, perhaps one of the best pitches a reliever has when it's going well, you don't need to throw it like wildly outside or inside, depending on who you're talking about, but basically wild glove side misses from a lefty. You don't need that. He doesn't need to be that. I know he sometimes feels like he needs to be that because of the bad contact he gets sometimes leading to bad luck and having base runners on. But I think sometimes he complicates matters for himself and just tries to be perfect. And, you know, I think we're seeing the rewards right now when he's just attack, 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 especially, you know, he's done it against Texas and, 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 you know, the Royals and, and, but he's also, you know, showed up against Boston too, which has a good lineup, had a couple holds. So yeah, I think he's showing what you want to see, just more of a matter of, uh, uh, you know, will he fall off at one point and need four or five games to get back on track? I do like on how Tony Russa has used Aaron Bummer with two outs facing a lefty, because that's a way you could circumvent the three batter minimum rule is that if Bummer can get that lefty out, then you may not need to go into the seventh inning and have Aaron Bummer start that seventh inning unless you are facing a lefty heavy lineup, which the Houston Astros can be, especially when you look at Michael Brantley, who terrorized the White Sox earlier this season. If Brantley would to start the next inning, then maybe you could have Bummer start that uh, following inning if he was able to get the previous batter out. Uh, but yeah, it's great to see Aaron Bummer and Michael Kopech throwing really well out of the bullpen. We have been worrying about the eighth inning and the bridge to get to Liam Hendricks. When these two are on, it makes it a lot easier. But the White Sox have not been playing in safe situations, so we haven't seen a lot of Liam Hendricks uh, in the past week. All right, so we're going to shift away from in analyzing the White Sox. And let's talk about this new ballpark, the ballpark that they played in for the first time ever, the Globe Life Park in Arlington, Texas, the new home of the Texas Rangers. So I want to ask you, Jim, how did the game look on TV? The, at times I have watched games, uh, Rangers games on TV. Uh, the World Series, obviously, last year between the Dodgers and Rays because of covid was played at that stadium. Uh, so for watching games on TV at this stadium, uh, what are your feelings about this brand new stadium for the Rangers? It's uh, one, it seemed like it played really large. Like I'm thinking um, on Saturday, Yohan Moncada looked like he hit like a go ahead home run or at least like an extra base hit um, towards the right center gap, but it got flagged down on the warning track. There's a leaping grab, but it wasn't a home run robbery. Like it just kind of ran out of steam. And Yasmani Grandal ripped the ball to right field, did the bat drop, but it barely cleared the wall. So it seemed like it was playing larger than 
it seemed by the measurements and even like just looking at uh, you know pitcher reactions when the White Sox gave up like a homer to center field, like anything alley to alley seemed like there was a lot of room for it to be caught and more or less was. So, you know, for a White Sox team that often uses the homer to get wins, like it wasn't one they could rely on for like a successful um, recipe. The other thing that seemed to me was with the, like the, I guess the dead center camera, you know, usually the home plate camera is offset a little bit, um, usually on the right side of the mound facing the plate. So the pitcher is to the left of the plate when you're looking at it. But I think with the way the stadium is oriented, you have this uh, you know, camera directly over the pitcher and higher up. And it made the pitches seem faster. Hmm. Like it made them seem like uh, they were on top of the hitters a lot quicker. Like even like a guy like Mike Wright, who throws like round 90, like it seemed like he was throwing smoke. And, <laughs> you know, one, you know, he is relative to, you know, Pitching us. that any of us have ever faced, yeah. <laughs> like it really makes you admire the reaction time that hitters have, and makes you, yeah. It's when you watch enough games, it, it kind of all blends together. But it's like, wow, these these pitches are really coming in. Like I have no idea how hitters react to this and how they can process that kind of information, that kind of speed. So there is that. I just wonder if it's like a you know, kind of a camera sleight of hand, or maybe just the angle being a little bit you know, higher up vertically to make, maybe it makes the pitches look like they have uh, more riding action or something like that. But that's, those are the two things I noticed about the park itself and um, that, that I don't really see in other parks. Well, visiting the stadium for the first time, here are my notes for my ballpark visit. Let's start with the good. The views around the stadium, especially when you walk in, because we entered the stadium from the center field gate gym, uh, you see the entire field right away. It's a fantastic view. And as I walked around the stadium, kind of peeking in in random sections to see what the view is from those seats, I don't think there's a bad view at Globe Life Park. So if you want to go, like let's say next year, if you would like to go visit the stadium, get another stadium checked off your list and watch the White Sox uh, play the Texas Rangers, I wouldn't be too concerned about where you are sitting. Uh, you're going to have a great seat and a great view of the game, no matter where you sit. Uh, second, it is air conditioned. It is super hot in Texas in September. It was 97 degrees as we were walking up to the stadium. So I really appreciated that they are now playing in a retractable dome stadium, gym where it is air conditioned because that made life a lot better as a fan. Uh, their scoreboard showed multiple advanced metrics, including walk rate and strikeout rate, which I thought was a very nice touch. And they have a live exit velocity, launch angle, and distance scoreboard, even mm -hmm. for foul balls. They were posting in what the exit velocity was uh, on foul balls, which was, uh, which was neat. And, of course, they have Dr. Pepper. That's a big plus, big plus uh, in my notebook. Uh, here is what I think is fine. You know how you go to a game at Guarantee Rayfield Gym and you it seems like you could buy a hot dog or a sausage at any corner of the stadium? Mm -hmm. Texas is the same way, but with nachos. There are like 10 places in the 100 level at the stadium where you can just buy nachos. And we're not talking hmm. about fancy nachos. We're talking about nachos you can get at the movie theater. 
Just chips, a cheese machine? Yeah, chips and cheese. They must love nachos because it was difficult just to find a place uh, to buy hot dogs. You will see more fried chicken places uh, like chicken tenders, chicken wings, chicken sandwiches. Uh, then you will see sausages or hot dogs. Uh, so keep that in mind. If you love nachos, this is the place for you. The boomstick. So we got this question from one of our Patreon supporters, Kyle Nelson, no relation. Uh, and he wrote to us, I'm betting you all touched on this, but on Josh's Twitter, he posted that crazy hot dog at Globe Life. How was it? And during the broadcast, when I caught a few innings on Friday and Saturday, uh, I, I saw that Jason Benetti was talking about it and they were showing a White Sox fan uh, trying to eat it by themselves. So my buddy Paul accomplished the feat. I egged him on. I'm like, this could be a once-in-a-lifetime thing, Paul. You're young enough to be able to handle this. Go do it. And he gets this monstrosity, and it is a, like, 24-inch chili cheese dog with onions and jalapenos, and he did it. He ate the whole thing, Jim. And his review was, the chili is good, the cheese is good, the hot dog is good. The pretzel bun, it's on a pretzel bun, was airy. He he didn't say it was really a bun. He said it's like a pretzel styrofoam. And that, that was a bit off-putting. So for those that have tried the boomstick and have accomplished the feat of eating it solo, uh, also post your guys' review on SoxMachine.com on uh, what you thought. But that was the one thing that he said that was lacking uh, or kind of downgraded the, the food item was the, the lawn pretzel bun. Uh, there's not many beer options uh, at Globe Life, it's it's a Budweiser shop. It's a lot of Budweiser, Bud Light products. Uh, there is some breweries, uh, Texas breweries, so they have some local options that you will not find in Chicago. Uh, so that's right up your alley, but it's not many. If you love frozen drinks, this is right up your alley. There's multiple stations for frozen margaritas. Uh, the stadium itself, very modern. There's no quirks. Um, no, as far as bringing back old relics from the previous two stadiums for the Texas Rangers, uh, it is a very modern stadium. Uh, what's not good? Uh, public transportation is not an option. And there's poor parking lot maps and little signage when you get closer to the new stadium. So it makes it very difficult for visiting fans who are not living in Dallas to know where to go. Because you have this entire complex that still includes the old stadium as it's still upright uh, across the street. You also have the Cowboy Stadium. So you have all of these different parking lots and you got live music venues. But there's very little signage in telling you where to go. I, I prepaid my parking so it tells me to go to Lot L. There's no signage to tell you where to go. It doesn't even show up on Google Maps. Uh, so that was really frustrating because we spent like 15 minutes trying to figure out where to go to park. And we eventually found our parking lot that we are designated to. But that is something the Texas Rangers definitely need to fix. 
They need to work with Google so it's on the Google Maps so your GPS could find your parking lot. And they got to add some signage because if you're not from Dallas uh, and that that's the first time you're visiting that area, it, it's very confusing on where to go. There's a lot of things that are there and there's hardly any direction on where to go. So th that's my review as far as the stadium. Uh, do you have any interest or maybe plans in the upcoming years, Jim, to visit Globe Life Field? Well, I'd like to go to every stadium. I'm kind of doing it casually. I think I'm up to 25. Um, some oh, stadiums wow. don't exist anymore. Um, like I'm counting like Shea Stadium and City Field. Like I've been to both, but you can't go to Shea Stadium anymore. So I've had I have a couple double counters among teams, but I'd like to go. But it, you know, I, I know when the plans came out and uh, the uh, the renderings came out, and then got their first looks of it during the pandemic season. Like it was likened to a Costco, you know, a hangar, like a warehouse yeah. just, just from the outside. Um, did you get that feeling yes. at all once you were in there? It's the shed. That's my yeah. nickname. It looks like an aluminum shed on the outside. Yeah. Cause Chase field didn't age well. Or like, you know, the diamondbacks have complaints about it. They want to get out from under it. So I just kind of wonder you know, having not been to Chase field yet, uh, what the difference is and, you know, I guess whether that'll change the way, you know, maybe just it's built for baseball better. Like you said, there's no bad view anywhere where I think, you know, Chase Field is kind of spaced out and, you know, maybe the seats are more distant, especially from the further reaches. But that's something that came to mind was just, you know, seeing what's happening in Arizona and how they are, are lobbying for a new park or upgrades from the public coffers. Um it seemed like, you know, maybe that's the kind of design that's going out. But then again, with retractable roofs, like I'm thinking with Safeco Field or uh, whatever, uh, T-Mobile Park, it's called now, and Miller Park, whatever that's called now. Like it, it can't, even like parks that are done well, can't quite shake the hangar feel just with the, the roof and roof infrastructure hanging over everything. But I imagine, you know, on the days where, you know, uh, for the Sox Machine 108 tailgates, um, that was a day where it seemed like they could really use the air conditioning just because <laughs> yeah. the the hangar style feeling of the park and just the the high walls everywhere made airflow basically non-existent and i think you know if you're looking at that kind of shed um strategy yeah i think you'd really want you'd be really missing airflow but i guess if they close the roof and make it air conditioned most of the time then i'm guessing that's not really that big of a concern but i'd like to cross it off i just don't feel any special urge to go there yet the way like i'd like to cross a couple other parks off my list like dodger stadium yeah haven't been there yet um comerica park i'd like to go to just you know parks i think are more i, I think i'm drawn to parks that are more open just because the ones that i've gone to that have that kind of roof infrastructure while it's nice to have a game guaranteed uh you know roger center was the same way just like the air doesn't go anywhere and i think that's something where if i'm sitting outside on an otherwise nice day that just might be a little bit too warm. Like, I, I tend to miss that. I do have to say that the Cowboys Stadium, that was the first time I saw it in person from a distance. That That's huge. That is a huge facility. And that looks impressive. And that also plays a factor while you're driving in. And then you see the Rangers' new stadium and ask, this is it? And then you look across the street and the old stadium looks better on the outside. I've, I never went in the inside of the previous Rangers. I didn't catch a chance to watch a game 
at the the older stadium for the Texas Rangers before they moved into this field. Um, But on the outside, that looks a lot better as a baseball stadium than their new stadium. But I do have to say, once you get through the gate and you enter inside, uh, there is a, there there's quite a few positives uh, about this new stadium. So for those that are interested and you want to check it off, maybe you're like Jim and you got 25 plus ballparks in your list that you've already visited. Uh, I do recommend it, and uh, you can go watch the White Sox next year in Arlington, Texas. The nearest city is going to be Dallas or Fort Worth that you want to fly into, and then get a car and uh, get yourself to Arlington to watch those games. After a quick word from our sponsors, we're going to preview the upcoming series against the Detroit Tigers as the White Sox travel to Motown. Will they clinch the American League Central in this upcoming series? We'll discuss that next. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price. Priceline. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. The Chicago White Sox head to Detroit for a three-game series against the Tigers. And the Detroit Tigers are currently 72-70 and 70 on the season. They're still in third place in the American League Central. They're a game and a half back of Cleveland for second place. In their last 10 games, Detroit has been playing well. They have won seven of their last 10 games. The season series, however, the White Sox have a comfortable lead. They're 9-4 against the Detroit Tigers this year. The last time that these two teams played, however, was back in 4th of July, in which the Tigers won that game 6-5. There's been plenty of new faces added for both rosters since the last time these two teams played. And what's remarkable 
again, is that the Detroit Tigers in their first 28 games this season were 8-20. and Since May 1st, they are 63-58, and five and a half games back with the White Sox in the American League Central. So if they had it their way, the season would have started on May 1st because they would be somewhat in the postseason race with the last couple of weeks in the regular season, even though they would still be distant. But that's a lot better than 8-20. and 20. And it, again, it is pretty remarkable where the Tigers are, uh, especially this season, when the expectation was that it would be a struggle for them to even win 70 games and they have already passed that threshold. Your pitching problems for this series, starting on Monday and Tuesday, these are 5.40 p.m. Central time starts. Carlos Rodon will be on the mound on Monday against Matt Manning. And on Tuesday, it will be Dallas Keuchel against Tyler Alexander for the Tigers. Wednesday, getaway day. This is a 12.10 p.m. Central time start, so some lunchtime baseball. Ronaldo Lopez is back on the mound for the White Sox against Casey Mize. Jim, as I mentioned in the uh, intro, there is an opportunity for the White Sox to clinch the American League Central in this series against Detroit. Cleveland is at home. They're playing four games in three days against the Kansas City Royals. So my question to you is, do you think the White Sox clinched the American League Central before Thursday's trip to Cleveland? I don't think so. Just if, It seems like it's way too convenient for them to have all matters closed before they play Cleveland. It feels like it needs to bleed into that series for at least one day. Well, that first day is going to be the doubleheader, right? Because they are going to be playing five games in four days against Cleveland. So Friday yeah. is the, no, I'm sorry, Thursday is the doubleheader. Yeah. So I, I think that's, a you know, maybe in that day, that might be the one where they're able to knock the final number off their magic number. If the White Sox do, let's say Kansas City helps the White Sox in a big way. They sweep the doubleheader they have against Cleveland on Monday and they win on Tuesday. Uh, if that does happen, how do you think Tony LaRusse is going to manage this ball club the rest of the season when the White Sox clinch the American League Central? Kind of the way he's been doing it this whole month. Uh, I think you know there, there's the balance of making sure guys don't get rusty the way Tim Anderson has lobbied his way into the lineup uh, because he's looked a bit a little bit off in the field, like the, game, the game's timing is off for him. Uh, I think the White Sox want to get that out of the way. I think they want to give somebody like Eloy Jimenez as many at-bats as possible, you know, within reason, to try to get him out of his funk before the postseason arrives because that's a case where, um, you know, on the whole, I think a team coming in hot or a team not is, um, you know, more or less you, know, you kind of shrug at it and say like, ah, you know, who knows if that's projectable for October. But I think, you know, at an individual level, when you have a guy like, Jimenez, who's coming off an injury, who's not covering the outside corner, like I think he could show something like the ability to drive the ball to right field and feel good that that's something he can carry into October. So I think at the individual level, there are some developments that could be sticky and that would be one of them. And I think with the pitchers, you know, the same thing, like he's, he has that in mind with the six man rotation, adding Reynaldo Lopez in to build an extra rest for everybody. We'll see how he manages the double header and, and what they do with the 27th man whether it's somebody like Jimmy Lambert, whether it's somebody like Cade McClure who could come up, like there are some options for what the White Sox can do there. But ultimately, just with the amount of guys who are either injured now and hopefully can come back, 
or recently injured, um, there's enough to where, uh, you know, he'll just have to continue rotating. And then like perhaps by the last week of the season, you get back into a normal workload, at least for the position players. Looking at Detroit, are we ready to pencil them as the strongest team to challenge the White Sox for the 2022 American League Central crown? Not quite, but they're a lot more interesting than I thought. Like, I'm just, I still marvel at the idea that they have, okay, now they're matched for runs with the Yankees. They both have scored 650 runs this year. That's something I did not picture. Um, Yeah, that doesn't mean that the uh, Tigers' offense is good. (laughs) The Yankees have been more disappointing than the Tigers, but that does lend a certain credibility to their ability to score enough runs to win some games and make life tough with the young pitching they've assembled. Um, Yeah, I think their pitching is deep enough to where they can pose tough series one through five. But, um, you know, right now they're, it seems like with Casey Mize, for instance, they're limiting his innings over the last month. Like he's throwing maybe two to three innings each time out. Like they're really not taxing him. I think they're paying more attention to labor during innings than maybe any kind of hard pitch count, but he's been, uh, kind of coasting into the final month of the season and just trying to take it easy to the finish line. Matt Manning has looked a bit, a little bit bumpy. I know with Scooble, they're also doing the same thing as they're doing with Mize that they're trying to ease up. So I think there's a little bit of consolidation left for them in order to just kind of build up the workload for all their pitchers to be able to carry an offense. It's still kind of a little bit uneven, but they're more interesting than I thought. And like a guy like Candelario's, you know, always been a pain for the White Sox, but is you know, hitting well against everybody else this month. You know, he's having a nice finish to the season. Um, you know, and, and I thought as somebody who's always looks better against the White Sox than he does his, his numbers tend to show. Um, like if he can be a stable threat, Robbie Grossman's been a nice player for them. They still have like, I still think they're missing like stars or at least like kind of a linchpin on the offensive side. And I think it's, I think it's funny that, you know, Jonathan Scope, they extended him and he's kind of been having a miserable second half. And it seems like the same thing with Matthew Boyd. Like whenever they're in a position to trade somebody and they don't, they tend to pay. They, they tend to not, uh, you know, get punished for not selling. But, you know, unfortunately for the White Sox and fortunately for them, I think they're past the point of selling now. And now it's more of a matter of just trying to develop the guys they have and maybe, you know, whether they can find the bat from within or add from the outside. I think they just need that kind of uh, middle of the threat offensive or middle of the lineup offensive threat. Yeah, I I don't get a strong feeling that this type of success that they're having since May 1st is going to convince the new leadership for the Detroit Tigers and their general manager, Al Avila, to be big spenders this upcoming offseason to address the lack of stars on this team that you mentioned, Jim. Like, I don't get that impression. Detroit, which you know, the previous decades have been big spenders. Uh, one of the top spenders in the American League Central for sure. I'm just not getting that feeling. So while this is a nice season for the Detroit Tigers, I'm still not sure what 2022 holds for this upcoming Tigers team. Like, I feel more confident that the Kansas City Royals will have a better season in 2022 then the Detroit Tigers, if that makes sense. Yeah, the one thing I'm wondering is with A.J. Hinch, like he's had a nice year. 
Um, Mike Matheny, you know, if it came to picking between the two managers, I would pick Hinch basically every day. Like Matheny, I don't get why right. he got that job. I think he frustrates Royals fans a lot. I'm not sure quite what his appeal is. Whereas with Hinch, the thing that was not appealing about him was the whole Astro scandal. And I think there is, you know, some weight to the argument that if you got him away from that organization, which is very, uh, when it all costs to a organization, that's more, I think you can call the Tigers organization more human than the, uh, the Houston Astros organization. Um, I don't think you run into that problem. I think you mitigate that concern. So, I think when it comes to leadership, I can see like maybe the Tigers coaching staff being a an asset or at least, you know, a, a coaching staff that helps get, uh, you know, a, a greater sum than the parts suggest, whereas the Royals could be the opposite. We will we will be recapping this series between the Tigers and the White Sox. This upcoming Wednesday night, because again, the White Sox are playing five games in four days in Cleveland, which is going to start this upcoming Thursday. So we'll have Sox Machine Live. We'll bring that back and we'll recap the White Sox Tiger series this upcoming Wednesday night. And hopefully we're talking about another series win for the Chicago White Sox. And it would be even better if they can clinch the American League Central before they head to Cleveland. Well, you guys had questions for us, so let's answer them next in P.O. Socks. You've stuffed our mailbox all week with questions from your tweets and Facebook posts. Now to cure your curiosity on the White Sox, here is P.O. Socks. Thanks, Rob. And yes, this is our favorite part of the show where you, our fans and listeners, get to ask the questions. It's P.O. Socks. And once again, our Patreon supporters, as always, guys, thank you so much have filled up our mailbag for this episode of the Sox Machine Podcast. And if you would like to be able to answer, uh, I guess, ask a question or write us a question or a topic for us to discuss, go to patreon.com slash Sox Machine to sign up to be a friend of Sox Machine now so you'll be able to do that for future episodes of the Sox Machine Podcast. All right, the first question that we have, Jim, from one of our longest tenure Patreon supporters, and that's Andrew Siegel. And Andrew wrote to us, what are you expecting from Adam Engel and Andrew Vaughn going into the playoffs? Do you think they have enough time to get their timing back, especially with the play every other day plan? I would say I'm pessimistic just with Vaughn that it's a back issue and not a leg issue that can pose complications, especially for a hitter who, you know, does not have like, say, Eloy Jimenez's track record or Yasmani Grandal's track record. He's trying to figure it out. I don't necessarily trust a rookie hitter who had, you know, basically no experience above high A before this year. For a lot of the year, he's been able to set that aside and forget that he's that inexperienced. But when he's coming back into, like, say, a postseason picture, and he may not be 100%, and he may not be like 100% in his core, which I think, you know, might be uh, a tough place for a hitter to lose power from, I'm skeptical that he could be, you know, a force in the lineup, the way he showed the capability when he was at his best. And Adam Engel, he's had a weird rehab stint, partially because of Charlotte's schedule, but also just like he hasn't quite shown the, you know, he's rotated between center and right. He's DH'd a couple times. He's, you know, had a game missed here and there. So I'm not quite sure if he's back all the way and just given how uncertain his status was with his hamstring even when he was off the IL and they're trying to you know introduce him back um I'm just not quite sure like how sticky 
you know, his particular issues are. So I think when it comes to both of them, I kind of treat them as bonuses at this point. I think Vaughn more than Angle. I think Angle's closer to coming back. And if he's back, you know, um, he'll be a part-time player. But I think that's why right now we're seeing a lot of Romy Gonzalez, uh, especially in right field, is I think uh, LaRusso would like to have one more right-handed option in the event that Angle and Vaughn are not able to cut it in October. And that's kind of a scary proposition. But right now, you know, just that's kind of how it is. You know, they have, you know, maybe Larry Garcia to help out from the right side. But other than that, you know, it's it's Brian Goodwin. It's Gavin Sheets. Uh, they don't really have anybody else from the right side who can, you know, pitch in, you know, should there be substitutions that, you know, take a ready bat out like Garcia or, you know, what have you. So I'm hoping that Angle can at least come back. But right now I'm just, you know, given how he's been iffy all season, I don't know why that would stop unless the White Sox sound very confident when he returns and, and get off that spring training redo uh, game plan that they have for them. Well, Andrew, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from as in wreck and as in wreck wrote to us, Jim, you and on base percentage and slugging have gone up this month and he's made some beautiful defensive plays in recent days. How surprising would it be if he was the breakout postseason star for the White Sox this October? Well, on one hand, I would say it's not surprising, you know, or it wouldn't be surprising at all given the, you know, preseason expectations and just, um, you know, what he'd accomplished in his previous best season in 2019, that he could put it all together just in time for him to be a force in October. And as you mentioned uh, earlier, that his plate appearances are really sound. He's starting to drive the ball more. And it seems like he's, you know, he's been breaking out. You know, maybe it's not going to be like the 1,000 OPS breakout, but it's, he's fine. You know, right now, his current form, he's fine. He, he's what you want to see. I just wonder if Moncada, like just, you know, I'm a little bit... Uh, reluctant to pin such hopes on him just because he, you know, he has hot and cold tendencies. He has some, you know, health issues that kind of flare up. He dropped the bat awkwardly on his last swing on, uh, on Sunday, just so it was a little bit odd. <laughs> and given that we've heard about a wrist issue that's affected the swing from the right hand side that, you know, maybe that comes up or, you know, maybe cause Moncada spends a lot of time on the field wincing, you know, just might be nothing. Just might be, he wasn't pleased with the way the at bat ended <laughs> and he's more unhappy with that than anything physically. But I just think, you know, Moncada is maybe one of those players who's built to frustrate a little bit. Kind of like, uh, you know, and he's a superior player, obviously, but like, you know, he's one of those players who can be appreciated for a lot of what he does, but, you know, sometimes has months or stretches or like one part of his game that just is visually distracting or, you know, very, you know, if you're scouting him by the eye test alone, you'd say like, oh, I don't like that. And, and, you know, to me, that's like a player like Tyler Flowers who like analytically, you know, he was fine, wins above replacement when it came when it comes to the 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 metrics that incorporated framing and game calling and what you want to see from a catcher. But just when you watched him and you watched the pass ball problems and you watched him struggle to shut down the running game and you watched him strike out a lot, you just didn't see that kind of player who was worth that kind of valuation. And I think, you know, Mancata's better, he's obviously more talented, more athletic, but just uh, I'm inclined to think that he's not going to make it easy on us discussing him. And I think that, you know, the, his detractors will have valid reasons or at least valid observations, or at least like the loudest, the, I guess the loudest or brightest 
visual cues he provides will provide content or um, material for his detractors in a way that you just kind of have to accept if you're looking at his value and looking what he provides, like with nice plays at third base and with his base running when he does get on and with his uh, plate discipline, like keeping line moving. Like he's he does a lot well, but he just, uh, I think it's pretty clear that he also just, you know, you, you wish he just provided a little bit more um, like he did in 2019. So I'm just inclined to think he's going to be that kind of frustrating player for just a little bit longer. So that's why I wouldn't pin a breakout hope on him, but um, he has the talent to do it. Well, as in rec, thank you so much for your question. Our next question comes from Scott and Scott wrote to us, given the turmoil and public meltdown of the San Diego Padres, how good do you feel about the ability of Rick Hahn and company with the job done regarding the rebuild and where the team stands now? And then for Josh, where were you, were you able to enjoy any Viet Cajun in Houston this weekend? Scott, I didn't go to Houston, unfortunately. I went to Austin. I do have to say I had uh, I, an, an amazing experience going to a Japanese steakhouse in Austin but they used the Texas barbecue smoking skills and I had a brisket bento box. That was Mm. something I'm always going to remember. So I'll definitely recommend that and I'll post it on Twitter and Sox Machine as well on where that place is for those that visit Austin. Uh, So Jim, the San Diego Padres, we've had a lot of conversations during the rebuild as these Mm -hmm. two teams uh, have been on these similar paths. Uh, what do you make as far as the downfall of the Padres, especially since the trade deadline? Well, first of all, I like brisket and I like bento boxes. So that you will love this. Great. You um, will love this. Uh, yes. But when it comes to the Padres, I'm actually been re- uh, uh, getting some thoughts down, planning to write a post about it on Monday. Uh, I was waiting for the series to fully conclude between the Cardinals and Padres just to understand what happened and, and see what their climb is. But yeah, it's, it's a mess. And if you told me like w- between the White Sox and Padres, uh, one team would be leaning on a completely toasted Jake Arietta to try to steal wins in <laughs> September, which one, which team do you think it would be? Uh, I would figure it'd be the White Sox. Yeah. But just no. <laughs> it seemed like the Padres, you know, the way they went about their business with you Darvish and Blake Snell uh, and Joe Musgrove, they look like they're trying to avoid that very, like they, they did everything necessary to avoid that situation and to, you know, not just get to the postseason, but beat the Dodgers. And now they're not even going to beat the Giants. <laughs> I mean, beating the Cardinals, they're falling out of the wildcard spot. So I'm putting some thoughts together on this. And for the second part of the question, when it comes to Rick Hahn and the, I think there'd be two separate posts for me because I'm I'm planning something about Rakan more when the White Sox clinch, you know, when that becomes official news and writing it about it from that scope. So it's going to be two different posts over the course of the next week or so. But I'm curious what you think, just to kind of flesh out my thinking some more in case, you know, there's something I'm overlooking. When it comes to the Padres, and especially my mini vacation, because I have two friends that are from San Diego and we were chatting about baseball and they are incredibly disheartened. They entered this season thinking how cool would it be for a Padres versus White Sox world series? We're not getting that. And like many White Sox fans that are ticket holders, uh, they have paid for postseason tickets 
that are not going to be happening with the way that this team has been playing. There's just too much talent on this San Diego Padres roster and this front office, A.J. Preller, has been blessed with an ownership group to be hyper-aggressive to get these stars and the top talent to come to San Diego so they can build a strong enough team to challenge the Dodgers. It hasn't gone their way, but this meltdown between Manny Machado and Fernando Tatis Jr. is not good. It's evident that the frustration is now hitting their two biggest stars on the team. And I just don't know on how manager Jace Tingler returns to San Diego. And reading into it, it sounds like Tingler and Preller have had this relationship since their days with the Texas Rangers. And it's very close knit. And there's a good chance that Tingler still comes back despite what has transpired in this season. But I'm wondering if this is like a breaking point, Jim. And what we're seeing is what happens when you have one of the elite teams in your division. And we're seeing this in the American League East as well with the New York Yankees. Like the Yankees are cracking under pressure. There's no reason why the Yankees should have lost that series to Cleveland over this weekend, Jim. Especially Garrett Cole on Sunday. Especially Garrett Cole on Sunday and the way that they got their butts kicked Mm -hmm. by Cleveland. Like if Cleveland scores five runs, that's a big night for them. They're putting up double digits on the Yankees. And there's no offense to speak of coming from the Yankees. And especially since the series uh, against the White Sox and they had that huge winning streak and it seemed like, well, here come the Bronx Bombers. The evil empire has risen. No, the evil empire may be watching the postseason from home. And I'd be surprised if Aaron Boone returns to manage the New York Yankees. I really do feel after this season, Jim, we're going to have two high-profile managerial openings, the New York Yankees and the San Diego Padres. And we heard rumors that Bruce Boshi was interested in the White Sox job, and physically he feels well enough to manage again. If he's interested in managing again, does a reunion make sense in San Diego for him to return and manage the Padres? And I don't know what kind of manager the Yankees would want to go after or bring in if they decide to move away from Aaron Boone. Uh, But we're seeing this now that when you have really strong divisions and you are a team like the Padres and Yankees, someone is going to lose this race. And when you are losing this race in the marathon, you seem to either get exhausted or you can't help yourself and you trip over yourself and you're not only dealing with the external problems, but now you're dealing with the internal problems. And it kind of reminds me of the downfall of the 2016 White Sox gym, where after that Kansas City uh, Memorial Day uh, weekend meltdown that they had against the Royals, that not only was it the pressure of the other teams stepping up and playing much better baseball, especially in the American League Central, but the White Sox internally, we have discovered over the years, were fighting within themselves, and that also led to their downfall. The San Diego Padres are going to have to fight to finish above 500, Jim. That, that's, mm-hmm. that's, that's crazy to me based on the things that we talked about before the season. It's also crazy to me to say that the Yankees 
are probably not going to make the postseason when I thought the New York Yankees, they were my pick to win the American League pennant over the White Sox this season. So I, I think you got two high-profile teams right now that the buzzards are going to be circling around the Padres and Yankees, and everybody, local, national, anyone that watches the game of baseball, are going to constantly ask questions on what are these two franchises going to do because these are just little disappointments in 2022. I think these are big missed opportunities for both the Yankees and Padres. Yeah, I think the division, that's kind of what I keep coming back to, is the division just has so much to do with how these rebuilds are finishing, or at least like, you know, maybe, I shouldn't say the rebuild, like maybe just the contention cycles, windows, just the, the ebbs and flow of the contention portion of this plan goes just because yeah you know, with the White Sox they just haven't been challenged. And I think if you put the Padres in the AL Central, if if you swap spots where the White Sox were in the NL West and the Padres were in the AL Central, like I don't think the White Sox would be melting down the way that the Padres have, just because I think you know one thing you can say about the White Sox rebuild is that the roster has been pretty consistent and the leadership has been pretty stable. Whereas uh, the Padres have been a lot more transactional when it comes to adding guys in from the outside, uh, mixing guys in. You know, there, there's, you know, I'm not sure what the hierarchy is right now. We saw Machado and Tatis flaring up. And sometimes, you know, those, um, you know, those dugout battles are, you know, the byproduct of conflict. And, and you know, conflict's not always bad. Like, uh, I always point to, you know, Robin Ventura as being, you know, a manager who really didn't, you know, have conflict and it wasn't good. Like he just, uh, just, he was somebody just kind of shrug and say, uh, um, yeah, well, it's just one of those things where, you know, and just, you know, more or less, yeah, uh, dismiss things and not really, you know, engage with them in an outward way. Whereas Tony La Russa, you know, one of his strengths, you know, I said it before, you know, the, even the DUI stuff came out was say like one of his strengths as a manager. And one of the reasons he's a hall of famer is because he's, he doesn't care if players hate him. He's able to set that aside. Like he's not afraid to get on players bad side. If he thinks he's in the right to do so, sometimes he's not in the right to do so, but like he can still fashion functioning relationships with his players and with his team, even if that player hates his guts for a long period of time, like the way Scott Rowland did. So, you know, when I look at, you know, I haven't paid attention too much with the Padres at the managerial level, except that I know they fired their pitching coach and they've been searching for answers and a lot of guys have been hurt. But when it comes to like the job that Jace Tingler is doing, I can't really speak to that. But I think when it comes to like the leadership hierarchy overall and the Jose Abreu, Tim Anderson, um, you know, and Lance Lynn fitting in very well, uh, the way that maybe Jake Peavy did not when he came in, like just finding uh, guys who fit, you know, I guess who come into the rotation just ready to play well and the leadership thing will sort itself out versus when the White Sox were actively importing leaders because they didn't have like veteran ballast on their rosters. And we're just hoping that, you know, a guy who led on the outside like Adam LaRoche would, uh, you know, do the same for the White Sox. And, you know, obviously that was a personality transplant that was thoroughly rejected. But <laughs> I think it's a... Uh, uh, just, I, I think there is a little bit of extracurricular activity there that does play into just how spectacularly the Padres have collapsed. But overall, I think just the, the pressure the division poses, as you mentioned, just has a lot to do with it. And that's why 
I don't take this month for granted. Like <laughs> as, as uh, frustrating and, and maybe as boring as the White Sox have been, it's great to be boring. Watching what's going with the Yankees, uh, seeing them kind of melt down, seeing the Toronto Blue Jays rise and fall and rise and seeing the AL East being a mess. <laughs> like just all these, uh, you know, these, these, um, you know, roller coaster rides are a lot of fun to watch from the outside, but uh, I would not want to be in their shoes following them on a day-to-day basis. I love boring. <laughs> it's great. So, you know, it could be the same thing next season for White Sox or maybe the, the Twins, uh, you know, as much that went wrong from this season, that much goes right next year or maybe the Tigers get better or maybe uh, the Indians somehow, uh, or future Guardians, that will be the Guardians at that point, uh, will, uh, you know, somehow, you know, get back to fashioning major league players out of nothing. But for the time being, you know, while it looks clear for the White Sox, embrace that. Embrace just how boring it is because you don't get this very often. If the White Sox make the World Series this year, a hypothetical, and they lose to the Los Angeles Dodgers, I think we're going to get a lot of questions on what can the White Sox do this upcoming offseason to build a strong enough team to overtake the Dodgers for the 2022 World Series. And I think that would be reasonable. If you lose a world championship, what can you do to improve your team so you could win the World Series the next year? Imagine being asking yourself that question, but you're in the same division as the Dodgers and you got to play them 19 times. Mm-hmm. Those are the questions that the San Francisco <laughs> Giants and the San Diego Padres and the Arizona Diamondbacks and the Colorado Rockies have to answer. That's why, like, with the Rockies and Diamondbacks, it's hard to even fathom a plan because what can you do when you still have this, the elite organization within your division? How do you overtake them? And the Giants are showing that you got to put the ball in the stands uh, and you have to have, you know, great rebound seasons from proven veterans and you got to make a bold move and acquire someone like Chris Bryant uh, and luck out to have someone like Kevin Gossman really step up and, and play and perform at a high level to outlast Los Angeles Dodgers. And they're still running that race in the National League West. Yeah, even that might not right, be enough. Exactly. The, the Giants could win 100 games this year and not win the West. Like, that's how tough it is. So if we go into this next offseason, White Sox fans, and you hear your fellow fans get a bit jealous because San Diego makes a big splash. Yeah, it's perfectly normal because, wow, they got this great player. I would love to see that great player in a White Sox uniform. Every baseball fan feels that way. But San Diego has to operate the way they have been because they have the Dodgers in their division. If Mike Illich was still alive and you brought back the mid-2000s Detroit Tigers or the early Detroit Tigers teams when they had Scherzer and Verlander and Miguel Cabrera in his prime, the White Sox would be facing that same type of challenge if the Tigers were just that strong back then as they, if they were that strong now as they were back then while the White Sox were in their contention window. But that's not the case. And that is the benefit right now of the White Sox being in the American League Central. They can look at, say, a possible matchup against the Dodgers in a World Series and be content because it requires them to win the American League pennant. And that is an awesome Mm -hmm. accomplishment. 
The Dodgers have to deal with the <laughs> the Padres have to deal with the Dodgers 19 times a season. And that is a huge hurdle. And right now, I think they're just buckling under that pressure on how do we overtake the Dodgers. And in by doing so, they have done a very bad job in their games, in my opinion, against the Diamondbacks and Rockies. They haven't taken advantage of those two poor teams. And it's really opened the door for a team like the San Francisco Giants to really burst through and uh, surprise everyone and be in the driver's seat still as we record this in the National League West. And even like a team like the Reds, too, at the wildcard level. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, Dodgers, you better win that National League West because, man, I don't know if I want to face the St. Louis Cardinals in a one-game playoff. Yeah, like I'm, I'm bummed for the Reds just because I... I like the way they've gone about their business the last few years trying when the numbers say right. they shouldn't. And I, I'd like to see that rewarded. But yeah, it looks like they're fading a bit and the Cardinals have caught... Yeah, the Cardinals are as good right now as we thought they would be, more or less. Just they've really backloaded their success. Yeah, it took them a while <laughs> to get into that rhythm. Yeah. But uh, yeah, just you know, seeing... You know, I'm looking at the wildcard standings right now. Seeing, yeah, the Reds and the Phillies now... Well, the Phillies and uh, Padres are tied. But yeah, just... Three and a half games out, the Padres are. And the Phillies may have the National League MVP in Bryce Harper. Mm -hmm. He has been playing outstanding baseball. And Philadelphia is kind of in this mix too, right? They get Joe Girardi. They signed Zach Wheeler. They got Aaron Nola. They got Bryce Harper. They signed J. They, you know, brought back JT Real Muto. You know, they spent a lot of cash. They got Dave Dabrowski leading the charge. And they're still outside of the postseason. Like, they got an Atlanta Braves problem that they're trying to overtake. And there's going to be some serious questions about the Phillies this upcoming offseason. Uh, there's going to be serious questions about the New York Mets this upcoming offseason. There are some teams that, again, they're going to have some difficult questions they're going to have to answer this upcoming offseason. And for us as a fan base, as White Sox fans, I totally agree with you, Jim. Boring is good. It's perfectly fine to take advantage of a weak division and be content with that. And we could have that elevated conversation of it's one thing to build a team to outlast everyone in the American League Central for 162 games. But eventually they're going to have to have that conversation and make the moves like trading for Craig Kimbrell midseason like Rick Hahn has that focuses on what they can do to win the American League pennant. And if they can get to the World Series, then it's pretty much out of the hands of the front office, and it's totally on the players themselves in that premier matchup on how well they perform and who wants it more in that seven games. But, yeah, I think to answer your question, Scott, I know it's a, it's a long one. There are teams that have serious challenges in the divisions. They have very strong teams right now. And I think they're just buckling under that pressure to overtake them. And the White Sox don't have that pressure right now. But thank you so much, Scott, for your question. And thank you to everyone that submitted questions to us this week for P.O. Sox. Again, if you have a question or topic that you would like to ask us in an upcoming episode 
of the Sox Machine podcast, or like we had last week when Dan Zaborski joined me for a White Sox wake-up call, and he had a impromptu P.O. Sox session. The best way to get those questions in and for them to be answered on the show is by becoming a Patreon supporter at patreon.com slash machine, where our Patreon supporters get more with their monthly or annual support, uh, which annual plans save you 9% from the monthly plans. And with that support, you get an ad-free version of the podcast and website. You also get exclusive content, bonus content as our Patreon supporters get bonus POSOX questions answered that Jim and I record for their version of the podcast in a separate RSS feed. And you get the first opportunity to purchase Sox Machine swag as well. And uh, how are we doing on the pint glasses, Jim? I'm going to be patching up this uh, week, you know, with the travel and such. I figured I'd just give it an extra week to, uh, you know, get a handle on that but yeah this week i'll be packaging them out uh getting more bubble wrap to ensure that they get there safely and uh once i get them all out i will put a limited supply on the store excellent all right so if you don't have a socks machine pike glass yet when they're in the store i recommend acting fast uh, because i do think they are going to fly off the shelf and jim's going to be visiting the U.S. Postal Service uh, more often. And if you'd rather, these... yeah, I should say, if you'd rather act slow or just <laughs> at your own pace, you can always uh, get one by signing up for an annual membership at the $10 tier, the 10 war tier. Excellent. Any Patreon callouts yes. you want to make, Jim? In our uh, habit of uh, giving a nod to two recent supporters, uh Thanks to Kevin Ha and Mike Tunney for your recent support. Really appreciate it. And then to go to the uh, reverse chronological order and go to the very beginning, January 1st, 2018. I'm still uh, tackling that list, but day one supporters, uh, uh, shout out to Kevin Shannon and Trooper Galactus. Big time supporters, uh, been around forever, and we appreciate that. Absolutely. Thank you guys again for your new and continued support of us at socks machine that will do it for this episode of the socks machine podcast thank you guys so much for listening if you just discovered the socks machine podcast you can follow us on twitter we're at socks machine you can follow me on twitter at socks machine underscore josh you can subscribe to the socks machine podcast wherever you listen to podcasts we also do videos as well which you can subscribe to our youtube page at youtube.com slash socks machine the Sox Machine Podcast is a production of SoxMachine.com, part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network, and your home for all things Chicago White Sox baseball. Alongside Jim Margulis, I'm Josh Nelson. Thanks for listening. It's happening daily. We're being conned by the institutions we used to trust. The mainstream media is distracting us with meaningless headlines instead of focusing on the harsh realities facing American families. Time is short before something big happens, and that's why so many folks are preparing. They're becoming self-reliant by investing in emergency food storage from My Patriot Supply. Go to MyPatriotSupply.com and secure four-week emergency food kits for each member of your family. 
Each kit contains tasty breakfasts, lunches, and dinners, averaging over 2,000 calories per day. Save $50 on each four-week food kit you purchase. Plus, get free shipping on Ready Hour four-week emergency food kits. You're not ready if it's not Ready Hour Foods. At My Patriot Supply, you can also get solar power generators, water filtration units, heirloom seeds, and survival gear. Order by 3 p.m. and your unmarked boxes ship the same day. Shop MyPatriotSupply.com today. MyPatriotSupply.com 